Hello and welcome to The Planet Today, where we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy. It is Friday the 13th of October 2023. I am your host, Matt Norton, here with producer and co-host extraordinaire Nick Janusa. Nick, how are we doing on this spookiest of spooky days aside from Halloween? I am feeling spooky today, Matt. So spooky that I almost considered getting a... Um, tattoo because it's like a flash sale because it's yeah yeah did you see that I don't know I didn't know about this two dollar tattoos every Friday the 13th at most uh, tattoo parlors yeah really cool so around here it's not two bucks it's like 50 but um still pretty good did I say Um, two yes I meant 20 and that was in Delaware when I was in college so um yeah not two inflation Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, just inflation, just ramping that up to 50. It's like, what do you mean it's not $2? Uh, Yeah, that's my mistake. (laughs) No, yeah, but I did consider it ultimately not going to get it. Um, But I did consider it, so pretty cool. I think I'm going to try to get a tattoo this winter. I tried to get one last winter, and uh, my tattoo artist stopped practicing in New York City. So I was like, all right, well, I can't do this this year, but um, we'll see. Yeah, maybe next year. We'll, we'll see. It's always a maybe next year. Um, but yeah, <laughs> feeling good, like a good October 13th. I meant Friday the 13th. I was going to say it's a good night to watch a scary movie. This cold open is over. Let's do the show. Kits for the week, and the first one is by Palab Ghosh of BBC, who writes Bird Flu. Scientists see gene editing hope for immune chickens. Researchers with the University of Edinburgh's Roslyn Institute identified three genes that they believe caused bird flu to spread in chickens and used gene editing to make two small changes to one of those genes. This helped breed birds that are not immune but are resistant to bird flu. And they said that this could actually wipe out the disease in as little as three years. The article points out that the bird flu spreads quickly through factory farming practices. And this is just something that fixes the symptom, which is bird flu, and doesn't really address the root cause at all, which is the practice of high density farming itself. Yeah, this can't be implemented in chickens yet until it creates full immunity because partial resistance would encourage the virus to mutate to stay alive. The article mentions that this could increase the risk of another global pandemic if the mutation made the virus deadly to humans. So this really is not something to roll out until it does create just full immunity. It was also important to the researchers that the birds are not harmed when their genes are modified. Yeah, I think that's a really good point about, you know, increasing the likelihood of a global pandemic by doing this sort of of work and, and not you know going through all of the applicable steps because climate change is going to make global pandemics more likely anyway. And I don't really think we should be tempting fate by doing something that also increases that risk. And if you're not aware, when I say climate change is going to make a pandemic more likely, it's because of a few things. One, we are getting more and more in contact with different animals that we've never been exposed to before. And that's because as we continue to develop, um, we continue to spread out where we are located 
we're interacting with these animals that are carriers of certain diseases that it doesn't impact them. And then it can jump to us and we're not carriers. We get sick. What does that have to do with climate change? Well, it becomes a lot easier to run into animals as they are also leaving their traditional lands. So you think about bats and birds and raccoons and rats that are leaving forests and caves, whatever, and starting to interact with humans more because their old area was too hot. So they're traveling north, for example, and then they get into the suburbs of some city when they do that. All of this means that we are more likely to run into animals that might carry diseases. So it is really important that we don't say, well, this is going to you know, create immunity for one of the genes. So even though the other two are still you know, potential issues, why don't we try it and see if it'll breed out? It, it won't. It'll be something that we saw like insecticides where we spray these crops to get resistant to certain insects. The insects that do survive become these super bugs, essentially, right. that are resistant to our insecticides. So we need more insecticides. And it's this you know, self-preserving cycle. Right. And it never actually addresses the root cause, which is the, the main issue there. Um, the other thing I was going to say is we just don't need another global pandemic. Like we just had one. We're just getting over it. It, it just doesn't need to happen. So yeah, I'm good for a while. <laughs> yeah, I'm good for a bit. Like that's like a hundred years thing. You know, like the last time I think something that major happened was Spanish. Spanish flu. That was what, 19... 19- 17? Yeah, Spanish flu, and that was like 1917 or 1915, something like that. So, yeah, don't need to live through like major world events uh, again. Yeah, I totally agree with you there. And the the other thing I just want to bring up quickly, I know you said this, but I'm really happy to hear that the birds that they were testing on weren't harmed during the gene editing process because it would be really easy to say, you know, whatever, it's a chicken, this is for the greater good, but it's kind of, you know, at, at least nice to hear that these scientists are doing things the ethical way. Yeah. I also feel like you don't have to hurt a chicken to to do to get this done. I don't know. It, I don't know enough about the process to to say, you know, one I'm way just or another. I'm saying but, I don't want you to hurt a chicken. That's yeah. <laughs> yeah. As I'm about to go eat chicken for dinner. Yeah, probably. No, I don't know. <laughs> I'm actually not. I'm, I'm eating vegetarian tonight, but that's cool. All right, let's get into our next story from The Guardian, where Damian Carrington writes, climate crisis costing $16 million an hour in extreme weather damage, study estimates. All right, buckle up because I'm about to get a little preachy, a little annoying here. So, you know, it's what I do. It's why people come to this show. Stronger storms, floods, and heat waves resulted in at least $2.8 trillion in damages between 2000 and 2019. If you are like me, you have no idea how to process how large 2.8 trillion of anything is. I need to see the rice, but you know, this is basically just an absolute metric beep ton of money. There you go, Nick. You don't have to edit that one out. Thank you. This is the equivalent of $16 million spent every hour over the past 20 years. And before we get into this article, before we discuss it in full, this is the argument against anyone who is still saying, Well, what is doing something about climate change going to cost us? You know, who is going to pay for it? It is already costing us so much to do absolutely nothing. $16 million an hour to just let this happen. So that's your argument. You know, like that is why 
whatever the cost is, it is less than the cost of dealing with the fallout of climate change. And you know what's the craziest part about this statistic, this $2.8 trillion in damages? The cost is probably much, much higher in reality. The researchers that did this work said themselves that a lack of data in low-income countries meant that the figures were probably seriously underestimated. And the analysis also didn't factor in things like crop yield declines due to climate change or sea level rise and its impact on coasts. So all of these things, when factored in, are going to make that $2.8 trillion number even higher. Yeah. So two thirds of the damage costs were due to the lives lost, while a third was due to property and other assets being destroyed. Storms like hurricanes, cyclones, and typhoons contributed the most to the costs at an estimated two-thirds. One major issue with the report that the article actually points out itself is the estimated loss of life for a human is $7 million per person, which that averages the estimates used by the United States and the United Kingdom when doing these loss of life analyses. This is called out as a standard economic practice, but one of the lead researchers said that a lot of people have been uncomfortable with putting a price on life. So, you know, it's standard practice, but it's something worth acknowledging when we talk about this. Another issue that I mentioned earlier kind of briefly is that data just wasn't available in some places. And one of the examples that they list is that there isn't any data on how many people died from heat waves in sub-Saharan Africa, for example. So the true number of how much climate change is actually costing us is likely so much higher than this number. And look, I mean, even if it wasn't right, even if it was just $2.8 trillion and just $16 million per hour, that's enough. That is enough for me to say whatever the economic cost is to mitigating climate change. So we don't have to deal with the adaptation to climate change as much is worth it. Yeah, no question. And like, this is just accounting for just damages, just straight damages. Like, let's say there's a flood in India. We're not accounting for them not being able to like grow rice for the next, you know, six months or nine months, whatever it is. And the cost that mm-hmm. that opportunity cost that that changes um, for them or wheat in Morocco, like anything you could you could go anywhere um, and say, well, we're just talking about damages here. We're not talking about like actual opportunity cost of like, we can't grow this now in this area because yeah. of X, Y, and Z hurricane, whatever it is, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's a really good point. I, you know, just kind of glossed over decreased co- crop yields, but that's what that means. Like, yeah. Thank you for elaborating on that. Cause it's really important to understand that it's not just what it sounds like a decrease in some cases, like you said, areas might not be able to grow things that they really rely upon for centuries. So yeah, yeah, the cost is, I'm going to go out and say it, the cost is much higher. I'm going to drop the probably, which you're not supposed to do when you're talking about (laughs) research, but it is, it is. (laughs) No, it's a hundred percent higher than this. Oh my goodness. So if you talk to people and you say, you know, I care about climate change and you're still talking to those kind of people who are like, yep, you know, it's a big issue and we did something about it, but it's just going to be so much money to, to deal with it. You know, who's going to pay for it? Link is in your show notes, share that with them, share, you know, if they don't trust the guardian as a source, then share the actual report itself, which is fact checked, which is peer reviewed, which is all those things you look for when you're looking for credible sources go share that with whomever and who knows, maybe, you know, maybe we change some minds. And at this point, like 
we need as many people fighting this fight as we can. And yeah, it sucks that we're still in that position. But look, I mean, this is a really important issue that's going to impact. Presumably, if you're listening to this show, like most of our demographic is, is it skews younger. Um, if you're listening, you're probably going to be in the voting block for a long, long time. So maybe we can change the minds. Yeah, absolutely. That's the, the goal. All right, time for this week's environmental policy roundup. Stockholm, Sweden announced a ban on diesel and petrol, or gas as we call it here in the States, cars in its city center beginning in 2025 to help improve air quality, reduce traffic noise, and hopefully accelerate the transition to electric vehicles. Exceptions will be granted for bigger vans, which can be plug-in hybrids under this, ambulances, police cars, and cars with a driver or passenger with a documented disability. New York City announced that cruise ships arriving in the city have agreed to connect to onshore power by 2028, which will improve air quality around the piers and decrease emissions for the city. Cruise passengers will also face a new $1 tax, which could raise up to $14 million over the next decade for the communities around the piers. Ships will also need to reduce emissions where commercially and operationally feasible with an annual report tracking their progress. Yeah, I love that news. I, you know, if you're new here this week, I live in New York City. So, you know, I put in a little local news for the people. It's also one of the most, you know, important economic cities in the world. So this does have greater implications than just, you know, my local neighborhood. But this is something that I love to see because when you look at the emissions maps across New York City and, you know, I'm going to scale this out to other cities that have ports, um, the emissions are a lot higher around the coasts where cruise ships dock. So here's a way to say that, you know, instead of just burning diesel fuel the entire time you're docked, you can plug into power that's on the shore. Guess what? Right now, a lot of that is still going to be natural gas. Yeah. But as we transition to more and more renewables, that number is also going to decrease. So natural gas is going to burn cleaner than diesel. Solar is going to burn cleaner than both of those. And, you know, this this is only going to get better over time. Um, so I, I'm really excited to see that. I think it's a way to check off so many boxes, including decreased emissions, improving air quality, and raising money for the communities around those piers. Because look, they face the brunt of you know the worst impacts of that air pollution for how long? And here's a way to improve communities without putting any burden on the people that actually live there. Yeah, absolutely. And shout out to New York City for doing this. I'm looking at you though, Miami, because. That is like the one, I think the biggest cruise port in like the entire world. There are so many cruises that, that leave from Miami. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully this is kind of like a um, benchmark for, for other ports and, and um, cruise terminals around the country to say, okay, we got to like, we got to step up here because this is uh, kind of crazy how much we're emitting. Yeah, I am. I am. Totally with you on that. And as always, those two stories are in your show notes if you want to read either of them for more detail. We are going to take a quick break and we got two more stories for you when we get back.
Today's episode of The Planet Today is brought to you by Valo Alta. Valo Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A.co and code TPT. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. Next up, floods, storms, and fires displaced 20,000 children every day over the past six years. UNICEF report finds by Rosa Rahimi of CNN. The first report of its kind, according to UNICEF, states that more than 43 million children were displaced due to climate change between 2016 and 2021, which is roughly 20,000 children every day. Floods and storms caused 95% of these displacements, with drought and wildfire causing the remainder. 23 of the 43 million displaced children were from the Philippines, India, and China, which the author of the article says are more prone to flood and storms due to their location and their geography. As a reminder, climate change is making each of these weather events stronger and more frequent. The report also noted that all three of those countries implement preemptive evacuation plans, meaning children can be moved before a disaster hits, which may account for the higher numbers of displacements. South Sudan and Somalia experienced the highest percentage of flood-caused child displacement at 11 and 12%, respectively. Drought was most impactful in Somalia, Ethiopia, and Afghanistan, with over 1.3 million children forced to leave their homes. The report did note that short- and long-term displacement can amplify issues children face, such as trafficking, abuse, malnutrition, disease, etc. The United States and Canada also experienced child displacement due to wildfires, but their numbers are expected to increase in the future. So, you know, I know we alluded to this earlier with who's going to pay for it, but this is just one of those stories to me that just, it's the answer to how do you get people to care about climate change if they don't already? Like, how do you not care about climate change at this point? This is something where it's impacting children across the world. Yeah. And it's going to continue to impact more children. And it's not just your grandkids' problem anymore, your great-grandkids' problem anymore. It's you. It's your children. It's the people around the world. Yeah, it it really is insane that someone could hear these numbers, like 43 million displaced children in total, Mm -hmm. just between five years. And like for you not to care about climate change or for you to continue to act like it's like a just a hoax. Yeah, it's it's completely just disrespectful and it's like insensitive. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. And, you know, on that topic of being insensitive, these people all need to go somewhere when they get displaced. So, you know, we all need to work to fight climate change. Or here's the alternative. When people are becoming climate refugees, right, and they are looking for a place to go, we need to 
stick out our hand and say, yes, I would like to help you. And I think it's a lot easier to extend help to those who need it if we first do the work to help mitigate climate change. You know, I I talked about mitigation and adaptation earlier. Mitigation is preventative measure. Mitigation is making climate change less bad in the future. Adaptation is how we react to its impacts. So if we can mitigate it, you know, just to make numbers easy, let's say there's a hundred thousand refugees that would be looking for a place to stay in your home state. If we mitigate it, that number drops down to 50 and it's a lot easier to find homes for half the people in a state that isn't getting any bigger. In fact, for us two people who live on, uh, in States with shorelines, our States are going to get smaller. Yeah. And these people need to go somewhere. These people need homes if they're going to be displaced due to drought, due to wildfire, due to storms, like all of these different things that are going to get more intense, going to get more frequent are going to contribute to more and more people who are in need of, of our help. Yeah. It's a great point. And like, I think it's always brought up that people um, need to come here like legally and like all this stuff or like, we need to put more work in at the border and stuff. And I don't want to make it about that, that right now, but for you to say all that, we're all immigrants and we're all, we all descend from immigrants mm-hmm. in this country. It's like, it's a guarantee. I don't care who you are. This is something we're responsible for. Like climate change is something that is human caused. Like we say all the time on this podcast, the United States is responsible for it. And for us to not accept climate refugees is insensitive. Yeah. And it is unfair to the countries that are like adversely affected to something that we have done. Yeah. And it's not just the U.S. Like just to be fair here. It's, yeah. China, it's India. Yeah. The, the global north, right? Like the industrialized world. We've all impacted this at a much, much higher rate than the countries that are impacted the most by climate change. So, yeah, we need to extend a hand and help. And it's a lot easier if we're not spread too thin. So, yeah best way to do that is to, you know, do, do the hard work to mitigate climate change in the first place. It's, it's not going to get, you know, exponentially better overnight, but we can make a much more livable future by 2050 if we can get off this current path. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Let's move on to our last quick hit of the week. And it's from the guardian where Ajit Niranjan writes, climate crisis will make Europe's beer cost more and taste worse say scientists. A little Oktoberfest special for you on today's TPT. Climate change is affecting the quantity and quality of hops used to brew beer, and unfortunately, it's not in a good way. Researchers forecast that high yields in Europe can decrease by 4 to 18% by 2050 if farmers are unable to deal with the hotter, drier weather. Alpha acids in the hops will decrease by 20 to 31% as well. And those alpha acids are the stuff that's in beer that gives its iconic smell and its you know distinctive tastes. Behind water and tea, beer is the third most popular drink in the world. The article does a good job of summing up its cultural importance around the world too with this quote. Beer brewing in Central Europe dates back thousands of years and is a cornerstone of the culture. People in the Czech Republic drink more beer than anywhere else in the world, according to a report from the Japanese beer maker Kirin. In Germany, where beer making has been regulated for 500 years by a purity law, the Oktoberfest welcomes 6 million beer drinkers from across the world into its tents each year. 
So the main drivers for this forecast are hotter temperatures and more frequent and severe droughts. But the biggest driver for the increase in costs has actually been high energy costs. A hop farmer from southern Germany named Andreas Arnhammer says the hops inside a beer do not cost as much as the cap on top of the bottle when speaking about the rising cost of gas due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. All right, Nick, we've talked about the cultural importance of beer. We have talked about why climate change is impacting it. Let's have a little fun to close out, close out today's show. What is your favorite beer? That's such a hard question. Um, I think, and I think this is just because I had it once and I haven't been able to have it again. Um, but I think it's Filtrata Alfredo by Beer Moretti. It is freaking insanely good. Um, and it's filtered at negative one degree Celsius. Whoa. I don't know if that makes a difference, but it, I had it in Italy. They don't have it here. It tasted unbelievable. And like I said, I think it's it might be just because it was such a unique experience. And I like appreciated it so much at the time, but like I really did taste it and I was like, oh my God, this is the best thing I've ever had. Gotcha. I I am so glad that you were that guy first because my favorite domestic beer is Miller High Life. I think it's perfect. Um, (laughs) But my favorite beer I've ever had was a Dunkel, which is like a darker, a darker amber beer um, from Hofbrauhaus in Munich. Um, I drank a lot of Dunkels when I was in Europe this summer and man, they're just like my favorite beer I've ever had. They go down so smooth. They taste so good. And yeah. something about having it in Hofbrauhaus, which is just this giant beer hall, was perfection. Um, yeah. I would be remiss if we didn't bring up New Belgium's Fat Tire on the show. It's the first climate neutral beer. Fat Tire is one of my favorite beers, and they do really good work across that entire brewery. Like New, New Belgium's really good about supporting workers' rights. Um, they're one of the best companies to work for as an LGBTQ member. They're really good about obviously climate change. They have a climate neutral beer that they're working on getting other beers to be, but also just wildlife conservation. Like they support a lot of really, really good causes. Um, They have a really fun brewery as well. If you ever find yourself in Fort Collins, Colorado, I'm sure the North Carolina one is just as fun, but can't speak from experience. (laughs) Yeah. The Germans do beer exceptionally well. There's a reason that they're like the kings of beer. Um, and I think there is something to be said for having like an experience attached to yeah, like a specific whatever food or drink or something like that. It makes it just all the more special. So do that where you can. And the last thing I'll say is for domestic, because I didn't say domestic one, Blue Moon. It's so simple, but it's so good if you just put an orange in it. Just throw an orange in it. There's a reason they market it that way. It is exceptional. It is my number one bonfire beer. Gotcha. Yeah, my favorite beer, you don't need to do anything to it because it's already perfect. It's the champagne of beers. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that'll do it for today's episode of TPT. We're going to be back next Friday for another episode. Um, it's actually going to be an interview with Tom Blue Wolf of Earth Keepers. But until then, go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can and follow our socials at Planet Today Pod. Nick Janus produces the show and makes all the music you hear throughout. Nick, where can people hear more of your tunes? You can hear more of my tunes at soundcloud.com slash Cape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out. I just put up a Doja Cat remix. Go check that out. Nice. Our logo is made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we'll catch you right here next Friday. Peace.